Hello everyone, I'm Ed Kemp and welcome to the Wide Open Road podcast series where we share the stories of athlete career transition to life after sport. This episode promises to be a cracker, but before I reveal our next guest, I'd like to thank everyone who has been listening and send a big shout out to those of you who have contacted the Wide Open Road. I'd also like to thank my major sponsor, Hardy Audio. If you are looking to produce your own podcast, need a voiceover expert to help with your advertising, or get all types of audio edited for public consumption, give Hardy Audio a try. In fact, call Lauren on 03 5334 3075 or email studio at hardyaudio.com.au. Right, on with the show. This week's guest is former Australian Rugby Union International and data analytics and innovator Ben Darwin. Ben had a stellar rugby career culminating in representing the Wallabies on 28 occasions, the last being the 2003 World Cup semi final against the All Blacks when he sustained a serious and career ending neck injury. One minute, Ben was on his way to a World Cup final on home soil against the arch-enemy England. The next, his career was over and he had to work out what he would do with the rest of his life. A situation that would be confronting. However, many professional sports people have had their careers cut short and whilst the challenge and perhaps grief they go through in the immediate aftermath may be confronting, the simple fact of the matter is they need to get on with the rest of their lives. Since his on-field career was cut short, Ben has forged an impressive career as a coach and in 2013, he founded Gainline Analytics, which is changing the way teams and organisations are analysed. However, along Ben's journey, there have been plenty of bumps and bruises, which he shares with us during this podcast. I started by asking Ben how he felt when he knew his career was over, and how he thought about life after sport while he was playing. So it, with my injury, it, it, wasn't, it didn't necessarily occur to me at the time um, the interesting thing was the first time I lay on the ground post-injury, I was actually thinking to myself, okay, if I'm a quadriplegic, what am I going to do with my life? I really like computers. I think I'm going to get into computing because when you're playing, you're trying to solve the problem. And so in that moment of the injury, I was just trying to solve the problem, which was what am I going to do? It, it only dawned on me gradually in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, um, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to play next week. Then that night, the surgeon, sorry, the, the doctor was saying, there's a strong chance you're not um, going to play next week. And then it became apparent through many difference to many doctors over about a month or so that that was it. And so I remember getting a call from Dr. Raftery and he called me and said, you're done, it's over. And I was in my car and it was probably a month after the injury. Um, but it, it, in some ways it, was, um, it didn't really hit me until guys were playing again and I was watching them play and I'm like, oh, I'm not part of that anymore. And you didn't have the the yin and the yang of the up and down of playing. And, and if you think about when you actually realised that you know your career was finished, do you think that having that, if you like, the clean break where you didn't have time to ponder about the fact that you were finishing, you just finished, do you think that potentially could have actually helped you get on with your life? Massively. I mean, one of the things I got was I was never told I wasn't wanted anymore. My, you know, my injury was... At the, at the pinnacle of my career, I just sort of managed to sort of cement a starting spot for the Wallabies. Um, and so, you know, I was, n- I was never, uh, I've never been better than I was retrospectively. When you retire, everyone tells you you're amazing retrospectively. And you're sort of like, who are you guys talking about? Um, whereas a lot of guys, they're told, okay, we're probably not going to contract you next year. You can look elsewhere. They go to Europe. And so it's a kind of a slow unwinding um, which is probably a, a gentler way to do it, but as well, I imagine it's pretty hard from an ego perspective to be told you're not wanted. And I would have thought that that plays into confidence, plays in the ability to, to transfer skills from one, the sporting field, to maybe the corporate world or into a building site or whatever it might be. If you're actually told you're no good, you're told you're not wanted, it's probably going to take you a bit of time to pick up your, pick up the pieces of your confidence to actually get up and go again. Yeah, I, I, I haven't experienced it in that way with, with sport. I mean, I've been fired from jobs in coaching. Um, that's pretty normal. Um, but, uh, you know, for, to be told when your entire dream is, um, you know, something you've always wanted to do and, and to be told you're not necessarily um, of value must be pretty difficult to take. Um, like I said, I've experienced it from a, from a coaching perspective, but I think by then you start to understand the political machinations of sometimes these decisions aren't skill-based, sometimes they're perception-based, um, as we see with coaches all the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, I, would, I would say the injury is the best thing that's happened to me. 
without question. And that, I mean, that's fascinating. If you, if you could we unpack that for a few for a few minutes, is that because you just simply had to move on and get moving with the rest of your life? And because I, I guess if you continue to play, you probably could have played into your early mid thirties if you were really really lucky, and you may have have had opportunities that came up, but you maybe you wouldn't have. Yeah, um, cognitive dissonance is pretty powerful. <laughs> so, so you know, whenever a decision is made, you tend to you tend to go with it and tend to, to to imagine it's the right thing to do. But I remember I had a dream about twenty, thirty times, where in my dream I would come back to play for Australia. I put my jersey on. I'm just about to run out the tunnel, and then just as I'm about to go out, I stop, and I take my jumper off and I hand it to Al Baxter, and he runs out and plays. And so Al and I were the two two props for Australia at the time. And I don't know why I kept having that dream, but it seemed to me it was like, because, you know, I, I kept harboring this idea that maybe I could come back and play because my neck didn't, you know, once it sort of recovered, it didn't feel too bad, but there was obviously a danger in it when you have what's called a sublux, you sort of dislocate it once, it's more likely to happen again. So, um, you know, when you're 28, 29 as a prop, you're kind of in your, still could be physically in a peak. So I, I, I realized I never wanted to put my parents back through that experience again of seeing me play. And so that was that was um, pretty helpful, but it was it was I I, do, I distinctly remember as each of my teammates retired, being being retired, not playing anymore became easier. And when I hit the point now where I'm 42, there's no one still playing at prop at 42, so I'd be done anyway. So I kind of, you know, there goes it's it's not me looking at the field going, you know. Um, you know, there's two, there's two two scenarios for me, which is there, but you know, for the grace of God, go I. One is when I see a quadriplegic. The other one is when I see a test match, and so I'm in that middle point. I'm not a quadriplegic, so that's great. Um, and you have survival guilt, and I'm also not playing test matches, which I miss. And then you have you know the the missing it, the the difficulty of of watching your teammates do something they love with people they love. So that's hard. And that dream. Do you think the dream was a mechanism to either cope? with the fact that you were no longer playing or was there a little bit of internal denial to go, you know what, I actually reckon I could do this again. I really want to do this again, but, oh, crikey, I can't. Yeah, I think it was it was my subconscious telling me, um, don't be so stupid. Um, and, and you know, I, I don't think I could have played because I think the worry about what could have happened every time I put my hand to a scrum and then thinking about the worry that would be for my family every time I put my head back in. And how whether I was now more susceptible to that same injury again, and and basically when I had the injury, the doctor said, you know, generally these things come out one of three ways: one, you're a quad; two, you die; three, you're going to walk out of here, and you're going to walk out of here. So I wouldn't be doing that anytime soon again. And I suspect that too, there would have been pressure on teammates, would have been pressure on opponents. Oh shit, should we tackle him or should we just leave him alone? Yeah, yeah, and and you don't want to be playing without that that. Um, the red haze, as I would put it, you want to play as competitively as you can, and um, I, I, I absolutely miss that level of competitiveness. Um, and I wouldn't want to go back unless you could have that again at the same level. So, when you got into coaching, is that one of the reasons why you got into coaching because you could replicate that competitiveness in a slightly different way? Um, coaching is far more similar to playing than it is normal life because it's the same buses, it's the same planes, it's the same up and down, it's the results that come. Um, you know, now that I've got my own business, you, you have you have the high five moments, but they're sort of few and far between, and they last about thirty seconds. Whereas, the thing I loved about playing was contributing to other people's efforts, watching them succeed, and and knowing that I'd contributed in some way. And so, coaching was was quite satisfying on that front. And I think too, you realise when you coach that you do actually, as a player, you play a, a minor part. And uh, you know, I think it was. It was interesting coaching retrospectively looking at my own career and the things I probably could have done differently, but it's obviously too late then. And then also in terms of how I look at teams now, um, uh, how incredibly lucky I was to be a part of the teams I was. And if you think about uh, the conversations that you might have had with teammates while you were playing and the fact that some teammates that you would have played with would have actually crossed over that Rubicon between amateur and professional rugby union, do you think that 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 sort of crossover allowed your contemporaries to get a bit of a kickstart on their professional contemporaries because they didn't have something to fall back on, i.e. a hell of a lot of money to play when uh, when they were playing? Yeah, I think that necessity has helped them enormously. I think if you look at guys like Gregan, Phil Kearns, those guys have done an incredible job of 
you know, during that period, um, you know, obviously you could say they probably didn't have this type of earnings that, that uh, their entire career, but they lived through a very, very successful period and that obviously helped them step up. I think that the, the team you're a part of and the success you have helps you to kind of step into that environment. I think that um, the thing I talk to guys about now when they retire and they get into, say, banking, is they now feel like they're 15 years behind. They're a long, long way behind their contemporaries. And so all the guys they used to make fun of when they were playing professionally who were sitting in banking meetings when they were traveling the world, uh, the, the shoe's now on the other foot, you know, and they're, and they're now sitting behind them and those guys are the CEOs of the companies and they kind of have to have to live with the fact that they are so far behind, you know, 10, 15 years behind. And you do, you know, you, you do see guys catch up um, and the experiences of playing probably help that and the linkages that come with that. But some guys never catch up. Some guys never kind of make that leap. And so when you're, you put your coaching hat on now, is there a, was there ever a duty that you had in your own mind where you had to deliver what I'd call develop the whole person? So not just the athlete, but a more broader, balanced individual? Because clearly a broader, balanced individual is probably going to transition to the next phase of their lives a lot easier than someone who is just focused 110% on their sport. Yet if you're coaching, you don't want players that aren't 110% committed to their sport. So how, do you, how does a coach balance that or, you, or don't you? I think I think well, I mean there is there is people for whom organizationally it's their role to help those players. I think that um, it depends upon the organization. I think that most organizations are in such chaos and that the the self-interest of the board, the self-interest of the executives and the the coaches pretty much ignores player development and ignores career development of the player and it ends up having to become, the domain of the player. It's one of those things that unless unless you're a Melbourne Storm or a Crusaders, they have the time, the inclination to really make sure their players are well looked after. And they tend to they tend to shape the behaviours of those players. So those behaviours end up becoming very self-starting. But if you look at, at other clubs, NRL, rugby union, that are functioning short-term churn, um, there's that pays that stuff's paid a lot of lip service, and so in the end, it has to come down to the athlete. The athlete has to be self-starting. They have to be, you know, looking after the, themselves um, in terms of their post career. I think there's a guy actually called Mark Stabino I played with. He's probably the best at it. Um, he's actually now in the US, and he's he he was, you know, if there was a lunch on, he would attend it. If there were sponsors, he'd take them out for golf. He'd take them out for coffee. You know, he would talk to every single person that needed to be. I think he was doing it in Cardiff. I was hearing him talk about it at some stage. And so, um, you know, th- there are guys who are really switched onto it and can really make sure they, they take care of themselves and have that eye towards it. Um, but you cannot rely upon the club to do it for you. There's a lot of sort of, I, I think there's a lot of tokenism in terms of um, player athlete development. And so it, it very much depends upon the state of the organization as to the state of the, the behavior of the club towards developing the athlete off the field. Ironically, David Parkin, who we interviewed a couple of months ago, was saying that it's 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 not coincidental that Sydney, Hawthorne and Geelong in the AFL have been very successful over the last 15 years and their ability to help their players transition out of the organisation and to the next phase of their lives has actually been very good as well. And they've allowed their players to have some balance outside of their day-to-day rigour of playing AFL footy. There can't be any coincidence with that, and and to some of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, that you're studying with Gainline is this issue of cohesion and consistency of personnel, which allows great outcomes on the field, but surely that must transfer to off the field over the course of time. So, so one of the things we've found is that is that stability, first of all, it reduces stress. You know, transferred athletes are highly stressed. Um, there's a lot of anecdotal injury, um, anecdotal evidence around. That actually causing injuries, that causing greater churn, behaviour issues. But if you're at a club for a long time, and and Swans, you know, they have a lot of contractual stability. Hawthorne similarly, is that you end up then developing relationships with the other players and relationships with the other with the sponsors of the club. And so, you know, if you're a one club player, you're going to be looked. You've got more chance of being looked after. If you've just arrived in a city at your ninth club in the last fourteen years. You shouldn't be expecting the club to take care of you post-retirement because you're just there to do a job. And so your your point earlier about 
the fact that Mark Stabina was going out to sponsor, taking them to playing golf, having lunch with them, getting in, getting to know the what I'd call the full club. I mean, in your experience when you were playing, did you ever do any of that? What was your reaction when people were doing that? Were you like, ah, I'd rather be lying on the couch recovering from an, from an injury or from a knock from the week before? What was the, the general kind of thoughts around the locker room when it came to people that were proactive and prepared to get off their backsides to actually develop themselves? To be to be honest, I think one of the hardest parts was was getting past those conversations with the sponsors you don't want to have. So one of the things that- And is that, is that just purely sport or conversation? Yeah, so, so basically if you go up and you meet and, and you're a sponsor and you meet George Gregan or Phil Kearns, you want to talk about the 99 World Cup. You know, the fans want to talk about that stuff. And so- for those guys, whether it's a forty-year-old CEO or a twenty-one-year-old, you know, student, um, it's a lot of repetitive conversations. So, athletes, by their nature, tend to shut up shop. You know, I remember specifically at a sponsorship, do a bunch of players all in a circle, and and those players were basically keeping tight so people wouldn't come and basically grab them and ask them, you know, repetitive questions. And so, what would happen was some some member of the public would come along and stand next to a player and then tap him on the back, and say, "Oh, Mark, can we have a conversation?" The, the group would then move across one metre to the right and then regroup again to sort of form a – it's like a bunch of players being picked off by sharks, you know. So, so <laughs> That's be pretty damn intimidating yeah, for the person that, that, wanted to talk exactly, to but that, that is a, you know, that is a, a worryingly inward-looking scenario. But, um, you know, for a lot of the players, I think it is hard to get past that. And you have to um, – you know, there's a term in rugby sometimes they use called a bandit, which is somebody who's a fan of the game but tends to ask over and over questions. I had a philosophy which is called the reverse bandit. You ask them, you ask them so many questions about their job before they can ask. Like if I talk to accounting, I'm like, "What accounting software do you use? You know, um, where did you do your CPA?" And I just hammer them until they would get bored with me because I found that far more fascinating <laughs> and never let them get a question in. Um, and that that helped to a certain extent. Did it work? Oh, well, I, I, maybe they never wanted to see me again. But I think it was at least more entertaining than than sitting and fielding questions about the game because you, it's. It's um it it can be a little bit repetitive. I mean, I've been asked about my neck now fifty thousand times. I've met every single person who was there at the stadium that night, and it is hard to be known for one thing. And so, even I've had to keep coming back to that one moment, whether it's good or bad. And so, getting to that point, one of the things that every athlete I've spoken to says is that there's an identity issue when you're an athlete and you're playing and training. You're known for being the athlete. Once you finish, unless you are in that probably 0.5% of the super elite that's going to go into the media and still maintain or coaching and maintain some sort of profile, you become almost invisible overnight. Do you think that uh, that issue of uh, identity and the fact that you're looking to stay in the moment of your playing career but at the same time you know you've actually got to move on and you have to probably become invisible to start a career again, do you you think that that's – playing the part in, in athletes staying in the game or staying in teams and competitive environments longer? And do you think that that's actually not going to help them when they do want to get out of the sport and, and move on with the rest of their lives? I've seen different people cope with it in different ways. I think because of because of how rugby's kind of built these days, you don't you don't there isn't an immediacy to it for most of us. It's it's you go from Australia then to go to Europe or they go to Japan and so there's like a there's like a slow fade out. But even if you are, even if you stop your career tomorrow, I mean, George Gregan's still famous, you know, like, and, and, um, and, and it actually, it actually doesn't end with your career that it, it, it fades slowly. And I actually, a good friend of mine, um, Ben Williams, he won the first big brother and I watched his life, um, post, post that time. And he went from being, you know, a rugby player to normal bloke to famous, but then over time, gradually, it occurred to him that he had to go and do something else. He's now a player agent and he's done very well, but it took a long time. He didn't have to become a player agent straight away. He went through this process of beginning to understand um, that he wasn't as famous anymore as it goes through for all of us and then slowly kind of figured out what he wanted to do. For me um, and a lot of guys, my actual I was actually at my peak of fame because of my injury and the nature of it post-injury. So actually, more people saw me and stopped me in the street because I'm walking around with a neck brace on. Um, now, the way I do regard fame is if you want to take the limelight when you're playing, you need to understand there's a limited amount of limelight. So you're going to take it off somebody else. So when you become famous, somebody else is losing it. And so you can't begrudge it when you lose it because someone other bugger is taking it because you took it off someone else yourself. So uh, I, 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 
you know, if you think about it as a collective gaze, it's going to have to shift and it's unfair of you to try to take it for yourself, you know, and to try to hold on to it in some way. So I, I'm, I'm, um, I, I just regard it as a, as a passing moment in time and um, fame is, a, is a, something of a byproduct of doing something you love. And, and It's obviously not why you do it. Clearly. No, of course not. But, it, but I think that um, it can get addictive for guys and it can get hard. To, you know, they go from being, being on the outside of the nightclub and asked to go in to trying to jump the queue to don't you know who I am to I've got to go to the back of the queue to I don't want to go to nightclubs anymore. You know, so it's kind of it 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 changes, but um, you know uh, the great thing about rugby is it's quite humbling. And I, you know, my kids play now, and I, I it all starts and ends on suburban fields. You know, there's a you you have a peak of um, of excitement while you're playing. You know, a very short period of time for most of us, two or three years, and you're back to normality. Um, I, I think everybody struggles with retirement, and everybody struggles in their own different way. I struggled. Um, with a number of things. One is I got diagnosed with ADHD post-retirement and that that helped me a little bit. It helped me understand my career a little bit better. But also, you know, I, I tend to find retirement brings up a lot of other stuff. You're sort of, when you're playing, you're floating along, you're earning good money. Then when you retire, maybe other things in your life kind of come to the fore a little bit and you kind of eventually, um, you have to face up to everything. Because when you're playing, you don't have to face up to everything. You can be rude to people and still earn good money and you don't you know you, you're treated you're treated too well sometimes and so you kind of don't really grow up you don't grow up until you're in your 30s and do you think that that i mean athletes generally in big you know in popular team sports are mollycoddled you know they're told where to be at what time what to wear who to talk to who not to talk to all those sorts of things Surely that can't be good for the development of a whole person when it comes to what they do when they finish their playing career. No, and I think that there is um, – I think that, that, that teams are beginning to change in their thinking around this. But certainly, you know, um, I remember hearing a story about the British and Irish Lions. Their 2015 tour was probably the – sorry, 2005 tour was kind of the peak of, of um, management overkill where you would finish – your um, you finish your hotel. You put, you pack your bag. You leave it in the room, and you don't see it again until you get to the next hotel. Like that's ridiculous. You know, um, most teams are not that um, overly uh, organised and and too taken care of. But if you're if you're a grounded person, you know, I'm I'm sure guys like David Beckham is pretty grounded. Then that stuff doesn't destroy you. If you're not a grounded person, then that's been being treated too kindly can be pretty destructive. And so guys then struggle with their kind of life post-career. I mean, I don't see someone like Greg struggling with his life post-career because he was a very grounded person from the beginning. He had wonderful parents, pretty grounded guy, good childhood. You know, from what I understand, I'm not making guesses, but um, it's the guys who who are there because of hard work but also may not have not have grown up as quickly as the rest of other players that kind of really struggle, I think, with being mollycoddled a little bit too much. And I mean, I think that it's it's clear that if you think about most sports, there's a massive spread with regards to the types of individuals that go into them, whether male or female. You'll have some that have they've gone to private school, some that may have had a university education combined with their sport, and then the complete the opposite. You'll have kids that have left school at 14, 15 with very little education, with nothing really to fall back on once they finish. That must be terribly scary and you would have seen that both from a playing and a coaching point of view when you were involved in rugby full-time. Yeah, I think that, that rugby um, tends to be dominated by a certain demographic because of the nature of it, unfortunately. But um, one of the things I see is is players making decisions based upon a large amount of dependence. So, for example, you know, a lot of guys who might be basketballers in the US, the decisions they make contractually might affect the college careers of 10, 15 people, you know, like they, they sponsor guys, they look after their family, they've got a wider group. Um, you know, a lot of them uh, will will have a lot of people depending on them. And so a multi-million dollar decision doesn't just affect them, it affects everybody. Um, and that, that com- creates a completely different scenario in terms of people's career development. Do I take the money now because I want to look after my family or do I or do I stay at this club and develop myself and take a pay cut because I care about these people? Like that's that creates a whole um, uh, a range of difficult decisions and makes people think in probably 
a little bit too in the short term rather than the long term. And that short term versus long term mindset, clearly when most athletes in team sports finish, they're going to be, I'm guessing, 35 to 40 years old of the absolute outside. Stats say that they're going to be on the planet for at least another 45 years. Um, that's a long time. And the ability for somebody to find something that's going to be challenging, it's going to be stimulating, and they're going to enjoy it without, I mean, I can't imagine it could be replicate what they did on the field or in the field of play or when they're competing. I mean, what do you think about the whole issue of that short-term athlete mindset about getting a game every week, about performing recovery versus at the same time, I'm going to be on the planet for another 50 or 60 years when I finish, so I've got to try and work out what the hell I'm going to do. It's almost impossible to create that sense of urgency for them until they either have a scare, um, until they're told you that's it, you're retiring, then all of a sudden post-career becomes very um, uh, front and centre. So the, It's the old, old hell moment. Oh, yeah. What do I do now? I had the exact moment myself. I mean, I'm very, very lucky. I've got a good family. I had I was very well taken care of by Australian rugby when I had my injury. Um, I didn't have to panic. But, um, you know, basically you, you, you are playing, you know, in your mind you're playing at 22 thinking you're going to be doing it another 10 years. But what players don't realise is that's the absolute best case scenario. I think average Super Rugby career is eight games. So most eight of those games. eight games. So most of those guys are just going to come, go, head off to Europe, wherever you know, head off to Japan, you know, um, play play a small amount and then shift somewhere else. Or um, you know, some guys never never even play a game. They'll, they'll, they might be contracted and go back to club rugby. I mean, I've seen that before. So it's it's. Everyone has this best case scenario in their head, but what they're looking at and thinking is the norm is about fifteen percent of guys. Most of the guys are two or three years. They're, they're out of the system. They're out of the system. And so how do you, how do you create that sense of urgency? Where I imagine when you finished, you'd probably played what professionally for six or seven years, and you'd be playing rugby. I guess you know from probably from the time you could run around. So you've been playing for twenty odd years, and then you just stop. Now. How do you get into the minds of developing athletes and the culture of sport to say, well, the same time you're playing, competing in whatever discipline you are, you need to make sure you've got an eye on the next 60 plus years. How on earth do you think codes and teams and individuals can get that mindset and get around that mindset? So the easiest way I think to do it is that if you if you hit them from the perspective of um, you know, you need to get some. You need to get some perspective in terms of the the, the career that doesn't work. I think I think telling them um, from a hip pocket perspective is the best way to do it. So my old man's a financial planner. He's always hammering me. You know, he's always giving me the five percent rule. He said, "You got a million dollars in the bank. You got fifty grand for the rest of your life." So if a player's earning three, four hundred grand, and he's spending two hundred thousand dollars of it, you know, he's going to need a couple of million dollars. There's that four million dollars to be able to live at that at that lifestyle for the rest of his life, and they're blowing that money in Sydney pretty easily. You know, if you want your kids to go to good schools, so if you say to a player, you need probably between two and four million dollars by the time you retire, and you can't rely, no one's going to pay you three hundred grand a year to dig holes. So you're going to either have to put everything you have of this away, or you're going to be able to need to supplement that income. Let's say you can put away two million by the time you retire. Therefore, you need, a, you need to be able to get yourself an education enough to get a job because four or five years down the track, your career no longer matters, your education matters, and, your qualification and the, the, matters. the classic issue that a lot of athletes have is that a lot of athletes, Olympic athletes, rowers, gymnasts, a lot of cyclists, they don't earn much money. So they're sacrificing everything they possibly can to get to the pinnacle every four years with not a lot of financial reward. And then at the same time, they've still got to work out what's next. I would argue that they're probably better positioned to transition to life after sport because they haven't had that kind of safety net of the of the reasonable paycheck coming in every month as part of their contractual arrangements with competing. And I think too that what athletes don't necessarily realise is how how many there are of them. There is thousands. You go to any um, speaking website or media website about you know how many professional speakers there are out there. There's thousands of us. 
ex-athletes. Um, and so there is a very limited pool of people in media, it's a very limited pool of people um, in doing, for example, speaking. And that only lasts a period of time. And and so, you know, I, I used to have a friend who was a newsreader and newsreaders oftentimes, they don't earn a lot of money newsreading, they get a lot of money speaking. So, but if they quit newsreading, that's over. What happens if you quit sport? You've got a very limited time to do any speaking because you're now you're now done. You're now a prior ex-athlete, so you're not going to be on TV anymore. So you can start out earning 5K, but that'll quickly dindle to $500 every appearance unless you're very, very lucky to do media. And so you're basically taking or a Or you're risk, Steve Bradbury. Or you're Steve Bradbury. And, yep, exactly. And um, and it's, it's one of those things where we're talking about a 1% chance of that working very well. So you have to therefore have a differential. You have to have a skill differential. You have to have an, a, a different type of ability. Um, and therefore, it's you've got to develop that while you're playing. Otherwise, you simply get to the end and you're the same as everybody else and it's $10,000, $20,000. And so what about the transferable skills that you can take out of professional sport? Obviously, structure, high-performance mindset, um, you know, being disciplined, all of those types of things, sacrifice. They're often talked about as the first thing that anybody needs to think about when they're moving from an elite sporting environment into a, a blue or white collar environment, especially a, a white collar environment where there are teams of people that come together to try and solve problems and make widgets and all sorts of other things. What are the sorts of things that you took out of uh, your playing career into the coaching sphere, but then into what you're doing now? So I think the first thing is that when you're talking about a high-performance mindset with sport, you're talking about getting yourself up to function in an environment that you're comfortable in, um, and you're only going to be comfortable in that environment by doing it. You know, the first time you play for Australia, everything moves too fast, everything moves too hard, and then you 10 games in, you get used to it, you get used to that speed, and then it's easy. You go back to play club rugby, it's not a problem. It's like going from, I've got four kids, when I go back to look after one, I love it. You know, it's easy. Um, so, so, but it's if you have a... If, if you're talking about 80 minutes of performance, when you talk about work, you're talking about high performance for hours and hours and hours, days, months. And I think that's really hard for athletes to get their head around is the grind. You know, there is the grind of doing the work, but there is a reward for that work. Whereas with business, it's just all grind and and a minimal reward. And that's hard because you you do, when you're playing, you do like the yin and the yang of results. You win, feels great. You come down, you go again, you got another challenge. You lose, you come back. It feels good because you've come back because of the losses. Whereas this is just, you've got the day in, the day out, and you have to find your own wins, you know, and, and also you have to you have to do things where sometimes there is no perceivable outcome. Like you, you, you do weights, you get stronger, you hit people harder, you do better. You do your tax returns, like, ugh, you know, it's not, it's not particularly um, that exciting. Now, I, I have been extraordinarily lucky with my business is that each, each thing I've done has been a progression. I played and I learned in my own way about through the teams I played for. Then I went into coaching and I learned more. I learned more perspective about the way the teams function. Then I started doing data analytics and I looked at it from a completely different angle and looked at cause and effect and, and you know, root cause analysis and correlation versus causation, and then came to a bunch of ideas based upon those three ideas, data analytics, playing and coaching. And so when I talk with clients, I talk about my own experiences and I can relate those experiences and I can relate their experiences to that. And that's, um, that's where I'm really, really lucky. Whereas a lot of people in sport, they don't get to use those experiences in that way and don't get to build upon it. So for me, I don't feel like I've been um, a career that has stopped and then started again and then gone into a different industry. Um, like I went to TAFE in Newcastle in 2007 and I was, you know, I found it really hard. I was sitting next to girls who were smoking a pack of cigarettes who were 16 and pregnant. I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, I've, got, I've gone right back again. It was actually a great, a great experience and I met good people. But um, to feel as though I haven't had to start again and I've progressed in my learning and that those experiences are a massive advantage for me. I, I when I talk to other data analysts, I'll say, Do you know what do you know what it feels like when you're playing with someone you've played for fifteen years? And I'm like, no. I was like, well that's what I'm trying to measure. And so um that that that's where I feel extraordinarily blessed. 
um, but also um, a little bit um, as though I, it, it's kind of a situation I've created for myself. As my wife says, I've kind of created an idea out of just just a hunch. And so that's a really interesting point because you've obviously been motivated enough and smart enough to work out that uh, whilst you probably weren't thinking about this natural progression when you finished playing, it obviously became pretty clear in your mind that you had certain attributes that lent itself to doing what you're doing now, but by getting the body of experience playing then a body of experience coaching is going to provide you with a hell of an advantage when you're doing what you're doing with game line. But getting back to, to other athletes, I mean, surely there must be ways for other athletes to be cognizant of the fact that they need to do this sort of stuff for themselves. You've got players associations and codes and individual clubs and organisations who will provide them with all sorts of different tools, but you can only lead a horse to water. They're the ones that have got to get off their backsides and they're the ones that have actually got to get out there and have a crack. Do you think in your coaching career and what you see now in elite sport, enough athletes are actually doing that? No, definitely not. I think that there are there are guys who are doing it and um, doing a wonderful job, and that's a perspective that's been drilled into them. Um, you know, I think the best athlete sometimes would be for someone whose parents aren't necessarily seeing that their athletic career is a be-all and end-all. I think sometimes the parents have got to be focused on this is something you're doing now, but that's not how it's going to be forever. Um, and the the problem is that fans don't carry on like that. Other players don't carry on like that. And so you're constantly drilled home to the message of what you're doing is the most valuable and what you're doing outside is not necessarily of huge value. And so it's got to come from somewhere else. It's got to come from either parents or um, – and, and, the, and the difficulty is, like I said, organizationally, the organizations care if a player misbehaves, if an ex-player, you know, hits rock bottom, you know, and they sort of so they find out this guy's an alcoholic or he's quit or life's – taking a bad turn, but that's not enough for the organizations to act. There's a lot of tokenism in this stuff. And so I, I think that it has to be back to the athlete because the athlete will be there post-career on their own, you know, um, dealing with the, as, as Wayne Bennett would say, sooner or later, everyone has to sit down to a banquet of their own consequences. If you don't learn during your career and you don't build a network and you don't build a, a skill set, the consequences of that is going to be, I've got to go dig holes. I've got to go drive an Uber. And what about if a, when you were coaching, I'm one of your players. I'm not sure where I'd play. I'm that small. I'd probably get killed on a rugby field. But <laughs> if if I came to you and said, Coach, I need to take the next two training sessions off because I'm going to do some work experience with an accounting firm, what would you say to them? I think that it all depends upon my situation. I think that I'm not I'm not dumb enough to say. That is a fantastic idea. You should go and do it. Most people, the, the one thing I've learned through my work, self-interest helps every, works every time. If I think I'm going to lose that game and that kid's saying, I want to take the time off, I'm like, no way in hell. you got to play because it's your job. Your job is to play. We're paying you to play. What if that person was the 21st best player on your list? Versus your first, because the point is, is that there are there are rules for everybody, but then there are rules for some. No one's created equal in the sporting environment, especially exactly. a team environment. Yeah. And whilst there's always this perception that you know, if one person gets punished, uh, the, you know, and some people say, well, we're not going to punish our star player because that just that just uh, punishes the whole team. Whereas if you don't punish the star player, that actually punishes the whole team in a different way altogether. I mean, and this is the thing that. I really am interested in it, which is around the culture of professional sport and the fact that, to your point before, in your experience, clubs, codes aren't really that concerned about, you know, the, if you like the washed up old old superstar who's fallen on hard times, although I think uh, credit to some like that is changing with respect to player hardship funds and the like that are being set up. But still, there's that bizarre focus on the here and now and the fact that the only thing that they were worried about, to your point before, is the fact that self-interest means that if that guy misses a game, I might not get the contract renewed as a coach. So I don't really give a stuff about what he does in 30 years' time. I'm worried about what he's doing now. And what he's doing now is being paid to play for me, not develop his next part of his life. But that's that's how listed companies work. That's how boards work. That's how 
you know, self-interest works every time. Short-term affects everything. And so um, the, the way in which an organization's put together is you have to be put together so strongly that you can afford the time to focus on the detail, which is then getting to, okay, let's make sure this guy's actually going to be taken care of post-career. Um, whereas if, you know, there's, there is no, there is no driver like, like self-interest in chaos, which, which is, ends up, the, the decisions you make and become about the next result. It's the next quarter. It's the next, um, result. And so it, it's, that's why, um, there's so much lip service paid in a way to this. And that's why I, I'm not saying this isn't important. It's absolutely unbelievably important for the athletes but they cannot rely organizationally on the teams they're a part of to take care of them. They have to be the ones to say, I'm going to do this like a Mark Stabena. I'm going to do this because all sorts of organizations are very different and we can't all play for the Crusaders. We can't all play for the... And, I, I, and that's no different in the corporate world. If, you want, if, you've, if you're in a job and you don't like the job, but you stay there. And I mean, I, I liken this when I get on public transport a lot of people, you can just tell that they're not happy, um, and that's that, that'd be a very sad place to be if you're not actually motivated to get out of bed and, and all you're doing is going through the motions every day, which I'm sure plenty of professional athletes struggle with from time to time. And I know that lots of fans would more than likely give their their left arm to play and be in your, the position you're in with the Wallabies or an AFL player or a Test cricketer, AFLW player, whatever it might be. But the simple reality is that it's very very different day-to-day because essentially it's a job isn't it yeah and and it is a it is a there is the dream you have as a kid is what you want to be able to do but then there is the grind of the of the of the reality of it when you're actually in that environment and it is hard it is emotionally um it certainly was emotionally a lot more testing than i thought it was going to be and you know i've seen guys in teams where they want to play for their country so badly but they don't like the coach so they're stuck because they don't want to give up on their dream, but they're also unhappy. So it's like it's like you've got the dream job working with the amazing director in a movie or something like that. That that per- perceivably it is the answer to the dreams, but if you're actually if it's actually an environment that you're not entirely comfortable in, you can't quit because you don't want to give up on the dream the 15 year old kid had. Um, whereas, you know, I've seen I've, I myself as I was pretty close to quitting at one stage when I was playing. I know other guys have I've been through that. And why why was that? Um, at the time, I wasn't getting on particularly well with the coach. That's kind of not a – it's not so much of a mystery. Um, and it was it was difficult because you want to be able to do it. And I was also very inconsistent in my performances. And it's it's this – you know, the, the problem was, what else am I going to do? So if you've, got, if you've got nothing to fall back on – and that's the other hard part is with all of this is, is valence – and valence is like the, the degree to which you're motivated. If people say, if you want to make it in Hollywood as an actor, don't have a plan B. Like you've got to commit completely to it. But what you want to be able to do as an athlete is completely commit to the process of being a great athlete so that, so that that allows you to be good. You can't be, you can't be half-assed about it. Um, there's a term burn the ships. You know, you've got to go in 100%. But you've also got to prepare for the life post and be successful, and so that's a really tough balance. Tough balance. And if, if you think you mentioned George Green and other players that were fortunate enough to play in World Cup winning teams, and as a result, there's some adulation there. There's there's a long term body of success, which probably allows them certain things, uh, whether it be notoriety with respect to you know walking down the street, but media contracts, endorsement deals that may last multiple years as opposed to last a couple of years while they're playing. I mean, do you think that that, I suppose, the ability for those people to transition well provides the ability for others to take a leaf out of their book? Or do you think that because there's such a massive spread between um, Agregan in rugby and the person who made a Wallaby squad but never actually got to play, that the fact that there's such a spread there that they're just not going to be in that same position, but because they're struggling and because they're the you know maybe they're the last person picked for every every team, they've actually got to work almost as hard or sorry harder than the stars because the stars are playing, they're getting picked, they're consistent, and these guys are scraping and every sinew of their living being 
is focused on trying to get there, but they never get there. But at the same time, they're leaving all this other stuff behind. Yeah, I think there's a lot of one. One, the guys who are very, very successful, of course, they've put in enormous effort. But there's also a lot of guys who put in huge amounts of effort who don't get anywhere, and a lot of that is luck. A lot of that is the club you go to, the environment you're a part of, the system you're a part of. I mean, uh, a guy, a young guy growing up in Australia now wanting to play for Australia, and it's going to be hard for him. It's harder for them now to win World Cups than it used to be. I'm not saying it's not easy. It wasn't easy back then. But there were some advantages to the way the Wallabies were constructed in that era that meant it was more plausible. Um, and the way that other countries were set up it was more plausible that they were going to be successful. So that allows you an avenue to be able to be sort of taken care of by a lot of other people. Having said that, you know, some of those guys, um, you know, if I think about the team in 99, for example, most of those guys now have done extraordinarily well post-career, but not everybody. Some of those guys, you know, um, have found it extremely hard. And part of it is that that success, you don't necessarily have to graft as much. You know, you know, a lot of the most most successful guys off the field um, weren't the number one starting players. You know, sometimes the best commentators aren't necessarily the guys who were played 100 tests and the best coaches aren't the guys who played a lot of games. So I think sometimes the graft of having to work really hard in your career can make guys better coaches. It can make guys better people post, post-career. Um, the problem is, though, is that failure is invisible. You know, like the, the, the Gregans and Larkhams, we say them because we know them, that we don't say the guys who played three games and then disappeared, whereas that's the bulk so when players go into these environments, they're looking at the top 5% thinking that's the norm, whereas it's actually the abnormal. And what was your experience when you walked into the locker room for the first time? We, I mean, were you, I mean, I'm assuming you would have been probably pretty nervous, um, maybe intimidated. Uh, I mean, what, what went through your mind there that maybe you, that could have helped you get your head around the fact that, you know, I've done one thing really well. There's no reason why I can't do something well outside of this when it's all finished. I mean, you, when you first jump into the competitive environment, you're completely starstruck. One of the, the greatest difficulties I've always found is that, um, you know, the human mind can't tell the difference between seeing someone in television and meeting them in reality. So you go up to those George Gregans like, hi, I'm Ben. They're like, yeah, how are you going? I don't know who you are. Um, Gregs, God bless you, remembers everybody. But, <laughs> but, but you, it, it, you have to double take because it doesn't make sense. You know, why do I know these people that don't know me? And so you have to kind of get used to the fact that now they are contemporaries. And you have to move past that that part about being starstruck. I mean, one of the things that a few people have said to me over the years is never meet your heroes. Well, you're meeting all your heroes at once. Um, and 99% of them, they're very, very nice guys. And they've got a great amount of humility. A guy like Owen Finnegan's probably one of the most humble guys I've ever met. Um, and at this stage of the game, when you're 22, 30 seems like a long, long way away. I remember yeah. my sister came to visit me in Newcastle when I was 19. She was 27. I'm like, do they even let 27-year-olds into nightclubs? Like, how are you even going to get in? You know, so <laughs> so the problem is 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 in life is that you are 40, you know, as, as I always say, like, you know, and, and all of a sudden we are our fathers. You know, you, you become your dad in 20 minutes. You don't – at 22, you don't have that view. You don't have that notion of I'm going to be 40 soon. Well, see, the funny thing is, is that everyone I've ever spoken to, either on this podcast series or just walking in the street, lunches, dinners, whatever, we all say the same thing. Crikey, life's gone quick. I remember the day that I was 17 and I left school. I remember when my first son, Henry, was born. He's now 15. And I'm like going, where's it all gone? And it, it sort of, it just doesn't seem to make sense that athletes don't get that into their own minds that this isn't going to last forever. I think the an average AFL career is maybe four seasons. I don't know how many games that equates to, but it's not a long period of time. And let's face it, these people aren't earning the big contracts. The tax man's taking 50% of their earnings anyway. So if they're on 400, they're only getting 200. And it, to me, it just it seems that there needs to be some sort of circuit breaker to get Australian sport and Australian sports professionals particularly thinking about things in a different way. I agree with you, but it's it's that's how youth works. You you focus on the here and now. The future is is everything it can be. The perspective comes retrospectively. It, it's very hard to get perspective young, and so um, it it has to be either forced or it has to be drilled into a young young person. I mean, most of the time, I spend my time at the moment cursing cursing my dad because everything he told me came true. 
everything he ever said to me. They're pretty wise like that. Uh, like, yeah, and I'm, so I'm waiting for my kids to do my, the same my four thing. Kids are the, uh, his revenge on me, and I'm, and my mum's revenge on me. So, um, I, I I find it I find the perspective of young players um, blindly thinking that the future is is um, is rosy entirely predictable. It's and and this isn't just Australia. This is all around the world. This is not something that is new. Youth is wasted on the youth, you know, and they 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 don't think ahead. They think in the short term. They're having an absolutely fantastic time, and um, uh, they are a reflection of everything they've learned. And at twenty two, what have you learned? Not a hell of a lot. And if you think about, just want to get back to your coaching for a second. What drew you back in? What was the thing that you went? You know what? I'm going to have a crack at this. So I'm actually going to go back and coach. Um, it was a genuine lack of understanding of what I need, of what to do. I was compl- I was pretty much lost after I played. Played so, you know, I'm sitting there at at 2013, sorry 2003. I've had my injury. Within a year, I'm divorced. Um, so my wife and I at the time broke up. Um, I, I I really didn't know what to do with myself. So I started coaching my local club, um, and and sort of trying to recover in a way from playing. So you you know when you retire, you know the trauma of you know, the day you retire is actually pretty good because everyone's sort of pretty happy for your career and you kind of, you know, for most people, I'm sure they kind of feel, as long as they're not told they're not wanted, they feel, you know, okay and everyone's around them. But it's sort of like the lonelier moments 18 months later where it starts to hit you. And what and what and when you you felt that lost feeling, I mean, what, what was it like? I mean, was it was it terrifying? Was it liberating? I mean, what, was, what went through your mind when you went, crikey, what am I going to do? So so when I was 15, I took a run around my the oval of my school and, and um, the caretaker of the school found me and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm running laps so I can play rugby for Australia. Like from that point on, that was it. That was everything I was going to do from 15 to, to 27. So I, I had not known a life without adolescence that didn't have a point. Um, and so now what what sort of goal am I going to set for myself? And so, I, I the coaching was the was the closest thing to what I knew. I went coaching club. Then I ended up coaching um, uh, Western Force in Perth. Uh, coached under John Mitchell over there. That didn't go very well. I was twenty seven trying to coach guys who were thirty one. Um, John John's a difficult guy to work with sometimes. Came back, went to Japan, had an absolute ball. Got diagnosed with my ADHD. Um, and I absolutely loved my coaching in Japan, had a terrific time, um, settled down a little bit more with my, my wife now. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, I, a, a lot of the time these things, it, it, it looks like it had a pattern, but most of the time you're making it up as you go along. And so I, I, I got back into coaching because it's what I knew within reason certainty and I did enjoy it. Um, but it's, it's also a back of a, of a fear of, you know, what else am I going to do? I don't have any other skill sets. I, I finished year 12 at school. Um, I've been very, very lucky now to find this business and this job. But a lot of that came about because I had four kids. I had no choice. I had to make this business work. But you also make your own luck too, don't you? Yeah. I, I, um, I, I, this is the only situation I'm in, so I imagine it's, it's very lucky, but it's been six years now. In the business, uh, as of yesterday, I think, and it's it's been a real graft, and it's only kind of now hitting a point where it's starting to hockey stick. You know, <laughs> we're getting some cut through, and that graft is clearly a message to current athletes who are looking to transition to the next phase of their lives. It's not going to be easy. They're going to have moments like no doubt you've had been where you've gone, crikey, what am I going to do? And then through Hard work, a bit of luck, probably being in the right place at the right time in certain situations. Here we are at 42, you've got an awesome business and doing some extraordinarily good things. I mean, if you think about what you're doing now and everything that's gone before you, do you think you're where you want to be? I've had, I've had um, one moment in my life which was the dream caught up to reality, which was 10 seconds singing the anthem against the All Blacks in the World Cup semifinal. So I was singing that anthem going, I am finally exactly at the place I'm supposed to be. Now, um, that's that was very, very special, but then you dive back into your normal life and, you know, it, it doesn't always feel like that. I feel like that a little bit more now when I'm with my business and when I'm speaking to clubs. But, you know, as you can see, this wonderful environment they're in, this is not where I want it to be. This is, 
I've got a set of um, goals about where I want to take the business. So I'm in that phase right now, which is what I, I don't know if you know the term pound the rock. Mm-hmm. Pound the rock is, you know, you hit it a thousand times and the thousand time it breaks, but it's the 999 times that go before it, which is what breaks the rock. So at the moment, I'm just in that that pounding the rock period. <laughs> and so you're still grafting and you're still just, just head down, bum up to try and make this a real success. Yeah, and um, it, uh, I, I've never in my wildest dreams thought that this form of entrepreneurship would be um, what it has been and, and satisfying. And I actually take more satisfaction in the business in a way than I did my own career. Is that because in your own career you were, you were, you were tuned to do that and you were tuned to do that from a quite a young age to get to the point where when you became – when you stood – Singing the anthem in the World Cup semi-final against the All Blacks, if that and that was the last game you played, but I suppose in a certain extent you could actually have you retired happy because you actually got there. Whereas a lot of people don't get there; they don't actually make it to where they wanted to be. Yeah, I mean, I the goal was to play 100 tests, which I didn't achieve, but I achieved the original goal, which was to play for Australia. Um, but you know, I, I think one of the things I used to feel was was it been the change rooms with the Brumbies. Was I look around and think, wow, I, you know, we did this together, but at the same time, sometimes I think to myself, it's probably pretty replaceable. You know, it could be somebody else do this. So I left and the guy after me, they still won a title. So you kind of like, you know, the Brumbies were a system and that's what makes them successful. It wasn't necessarily the me. Whereas with this work, um, I, I feel a little bit less replaceable. And, and one of the things that you have in team sports is you talk to individual athletes and they say, I really, love their feeling i'd love to you know individual athletes i'd love to be part of a team because i can celebrate with the people with whom i succeed but if you win wimbledon you're on your own no one quite understands what it's like yeah whereas what they get is they get a satisfaction of almost self self-selection that they've decided they wanted to be successful they've gone about and doing it and so there is no doubt that they were the people who did it when i did an iron man a couple of years ago and i finished i had a different feeling which was how long uh, an Ironman is... Um, no, how long did it take you? Uh, 14 hours, first one. And how did you feel when you finished? Uh, not too bad. <laughs> I, got sick, I got sick the second time, but I was just ahead of the bloke picking up cones at the back, but it was, I finished, so that was the goal. But, but I had this feeling of like, oh, I did this myself. It wasn't anybody else. That was, that was a different feeling. And so um, I have a business partner, I have people I work with, but there is a little bit more of a, it's just, it's just us, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this together and neither of us are replaceable. And so that's a little bit more satisfying. Now, scenario, a bit of a role play here. I'm walking down the street. I'm a aspiring rugby superstar like you were once. And I stop you at the lights and I say, you're Ben Darwin, aren't you? Have a, bit of a, ch- have a conversation. And then I, sit, I ask, Ben, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do when I finish playing. What are the three things that you'd tell me? Um, the first thing would I would be to say is um, once you get above minimum wage, say 50% of what you earn, <laughs> I'd, just, I'd take the financial planning aspect first. Um, that'd be my old man speaking to myself um, because you, you, you know, you, when you're believing, when you're earning, you know, five ten thousand $10,000 a week, that it'll keep going and it doesn't. Um, the second thing would be I wouldn't want to scare myself into thinking it's going to end at, t- at 27, but it'll be over tomorrow. What are your plans if it's over tomorrow? What are you going to do? And the, the difficulty is that the confidence which which you achieved your career, you believe is the confidence for which you can achieve anything else. So guys will go and buy pubs, think I can make this pub a cracker. I did a great job with that. But it doesn't work that way. You know, you, you are, you very specifically have success in, in sport. That doesn't mean you can be successful anywhere else. So I think part of it would be, you need to understand you need to start again. You can be confident, but that doesn't mean you can take shortcuts. You have to basically learn your next skill with the same type of preparation that you went into your rugby career with, but with a, hard, a, a harder work ethic. Um, and I think to this, the third part would be is to just enjoy every single game from now on in like it's your last, because it could be your last at any point. And, um, I probably wouldn't listen to anything I had to say whatsoever. <laughs> and to wrap up, what would you say to your 20-year-old self if you met your 20-year-old self when it came, comes to the journey you've been on, the career you had on the field, and the journey you're now going on off the field? I'd say uh, put a lot of money on Melbourne Storm to win most grand finals between now 
Maccabi Diva. Um, I, I, in a way, I, I sort of feel like the last question you had was very similar, which was, you know, whether it's my former self or, or a younger person. I, I think that um, I worried far more when I played because I felt that that things were going awry or things were. I, I think you you you're worrying about things that you shouldn't have been worrying. Yeah, about. that I didn't have to worry about, and um, and I, I stressed a lot about things that didn't really matter. And it's only when you have kids you sort of figure that out. Um, that you know the girlfriend or the the friend you have or the 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 things you might have said and the regrets you have they all just pass and eventually it's not really that important but i think that you worry so much as a young person about the decisions you make and the things you do um and and what's important who i'm who i'm hanging around with what nightclub i'm getting into um you deem those things to be important and then later on um, you end up with a family and you never get to leave the house anyway because of your kids and so you, you're left with yourself. So I think it's be more uh, worry about improving yourself than improving who you're with or what you're doing, you know, um, and, and if you do, do do things, do it to better yourself, learn more, um, don't, waste, don't waste any time. Ben Darwin, thank you. Pleasure.